Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As some listeners may remember from the Forgotten Australia episode about my Titanic ancestor, in 2018 I was reunited with my biological family thanks to clues I found in electoral roll records on Ancestry.com.au. Since then, I've gone a step further, using Ancestry DNA to connect with a whole bunch of cousins and second cousins. I've met some of them recently and it's really changed my world. Ancestry DNA helped me make other discoveries too, because it's shown that my genetic heritage is 58% Irish. The results took me even deeper than that, revealing my ancestors came from South Leitrim, West Cavan and bordering counties. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within them, giving you insightful geographical detail about your history. Maybe you also have Irish heritage. In the lead up to this St. Patrick's Day, Ancestry is offering you the chance to delve into your background with Ancestry DNA at the special price of $89, saving you $40. There could be more to your story. Piece it together with Ancestry. This special offer is valid until the 17th of March 2024 and the price does not include shipping. This episode of Forgotten Australia contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundagara people. I pay my respect to elders, past and present. It's Thursday the 24th of May 1945 and leading Melbourne CIB homicide expert senior detective Bill Donnelly and his partner detective Charles Petty are on the train to Mildura. The Second World War is almost over. In the wake of the Führer's bunker suicide and the fall of Berlin, Nazi Germany just over a fortnight ago offered its unconditional surrender. Now, the Allies are pushing the Japanese back across the Pacific towards the home islands. It's been a long and costly conflict. But these Melbourne detectives are making their long journey northwest to investigate a crime that took place back when Hitler's new Germany was an exciting defence against communism and Hirohito's Japan was a key trading partner to Australia. These two officers want to talk to Lionel Charles Thomas, alias Thomas Edward Croft, about the murder of Assistant Station Master Herbert Thomas Norwood at Carnegie in October of 1934. Though it was almost 11 years ago, new information has recently come to light. A previous witness, Kenneth O'Connell, has again told his story of what his former partner in crime, Thomas, confessed about this murder. But this time around, O'Connell's evidence is backed up by one of Thomas's former lady friends from Sydney. After hearing what these witnesses have had to say, detectives have been keeping ears and eyes out for Lionel Charles Thomas. In the 1930s, the man couldn't stay out of trouble or stay out of jail. Yet, 
In the nearly four years since he walked out of Pentridge, he seems to have vanished from the face of the earth. But now, detectives have word he's working at Redcliffs, 10 miles south of Mildura and living there with his parents. A local detective has confirmed this information. So, detectives Donnelly and Petty are on their way to the corner of the state, the Mallee rolling by their carriage windows. Tomorrow, they'll front Lionel Charles Thomas, and with any luck, they'll soon have a murderer behind bars. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second instalment in the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Terrible Mr. Thomas. Parts three and four will be released on general podcast platforms soon, but they're available early and ad-free for Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers. Links are in your show notes, and remember, you can get a three-day free trial via Apple. On Monday morning, the 28th of May, 1945, Thomas Croft's name was in all the newspapers. After more than a decade, he'd been charged with the Carnegie murder. Not only that, he'd confessed and was being held without bail ahead of his committal hearing. On the 13th of June, Thomas faced Mulvan Court. Three honorary justices would listen to witnesses recalling the crime and decide if the accused should stand trial. The Victorian government's pathologist described the fatal gunshot wounds suffered by Tom Norwood. He'd been hit in the back by two 32 caliber bullets, the wounds about a handspan apart. The bullets had ripped through his lungs and one had grazed his heart. If there was any mercy, it was that Tom died quickly from internal bleeding. A detective told of finding him dead on his back, a little blood on the front of his shirt from where one bullet protruded from his chest. The telephone receiver that he'd used to try to summon help in his dying moments was still off the hook. Just on a ledge near the booking window, there was the cash bag containing 137 pounds that had been the target of the robbery and the station master's loaded automatic pistol, which Tom had never had a chance to use. The metal security grills at both the booking and parcels counters had been bent by the bandit as he tried to reach the satchel. When railway porter Francis Morrissey testified, newspaper reports varied as to who he said had called him to the booking office because someone had fired shots. One article said he'd heard Tom himself yelling for help. Another said the porter was called over by a woman. Back in 1934, though, it had been reported he'd been alerted by a boy. In any case, Francis Morrissey found Tom mortally wounded and he had a frantic phone conversation with the Flinders Street operator. The next witness, Arthur Liddy, told the court of this call. He remembered Tom saying in a slow, mumbling voice, Send police to Carnegie. I've been shot. When Mr. Liddy asked if there was anyone there to look after him, Tom had replied, I'm alone. I'm dying. Witness Thomas McIntosh said he'd been with a friend outside Carnegie Station when they heard the shots four seconds apart. He then saw a man running down the ramp towards Morton Avenue. He appeared to have something shiny in his right hand. The man disappeared by jumping over a fence. John Galbally, well-known Collingwood VFL player and solicitor, had taken on Thomas's case. He asked Mr McIntosh if he'd identified his client at the lineup at Russell Street. The witness said no. He'd actually picked out two other men who more resembled the shooter. 
so his testimony was hardly incriminating. But 26-year-old Kathleen Durkin was perhaps more convincing. She said she'd seen a man standing inside the barrier gates the night of the shooting. He'd then had a black moustache, but it didn't matter. Even 11 years later, she recognised him. Kathleen had had no trouble picking him out of a dozen men lined up for her at Russell Street just two days ago. She was sure. The man in the dock was the man she'd seen that night at Carnegie Station. What was curious was that the newspaper articles reporting this didn't make anything of the fact that Kathleen had just been 15 years old at the time. Whether Mr. Garbley challenged her recollection wasn't reported. Perhaps the more pressing question, though, was where were the other witnesses? Marie Considine, who testified at the inquest as to the shooter's appearance, wasn't called. Yet, electoral roll records found at Ancestry.com.au show Marie was still alive and living in the area at the time of this committal hearing. Maybe she wasn't confident in her recall after a decade, or maybe she was afraid to testify. The same might have been true for Walter Strickland, the porter who'd been off duty that night but had seen the presumed gunman loitering around the station's platforms. Though Marie Considine and Walter Strickland weren't called, the prosecution had a show-stopping couple of witnesses who could link the accused to the crime directly. Kenneth O'Connell, Thomas's former partner in crime in Sydney, was now residing in Melbourne in a hotel in Spencer Street. He told the court at length of his conversations with the accused back when they were crooked cronies. In October 1934, when O'Connell ran a garage and motor hire business in Darlinghurst, Thomas had asked him if he thought it would be safe to drive a stolen car from Sydney to Melbourne. O'Connell had replied that if he got caught down south, he'd get six months. Thomas had then said, quote, If the Melbourne police ever get me, it will not be only six months they give me. Thomas had come to his garage subsequently to hire a car and then become a frequent customer. Around May 1935, he'd said to O'Connell, quote, I believe tour cars drive a lot of payroll work. I would like to get some information about the payroll parties as I am interested in that sort of thing. And if I had the right information, I could carry out a robbery which would be very profitable. O'Connell said he'd replied, You don't know what you're talking about. These payroll parties have armed escorts with them. Thomas said, I'd be armed myself and able to take care of the escort. Any Sydney detectives still investigating the 1941 Yandera Paycar robbery might have found that comment very interesting. In Malvern Court, O'Connell testified that he'd told Thomas he didn't want anything to do with guns. Thomas had said, It's the only way to do a robbery. Two weeks later, Thomas had said to O'Connell, If you give me information that I can use to pull off a successful payroll robbery, you'll get at least £2,000. O'Connell had replied he didn't want to be involved in anything where a shooting might occur. To this, Thomas had allegedly said, quote, You shouldn't let that worry you, as they only get hurt if they fail to do the right thing. If they hand over the money, there is never any shooting. But if they won't hand over the money, they deserve all they get. I struck one of those fellows who would not hand over on a job I'd done in Victoria. He rushed to a telephone, so I stopped him quick and lively. It's the only thing to do when you strike a mug like that. It's either you or them. 
It was after this conversation, O'Connell said, that he remembered reading something in the newspapers about the Carnegie robbery. The next time he saw Thomas, he said he knew what he was talking about now. And he definitely did not want to get mixed up in any of that sort of business. Thomas then allegedly said of the man he'd shot dead, quote, He only got what he deserved. If he had any brains, he would have handed over the money and would not have been hurt. O'Connell asked, Why shoot? Thomas said, I tried to stop him ringing up. You don't know those Melbourne police cars. All right, the police cars might have been fast, but why shoot twice? Thomas replied, He was still talking into the telephone after the first shot, but the second shot stopped him. O'Connell asked, Why bother robbing a railway station in the first place? Thomas replied, When I tried to rob it, there was a lot of money there from monthly bookings. I know what I am doing about railway stations. I have some knowledge of their working. Thomas told O'Connell just how close he'd come to getting that money. His fingers had actually been able to reach into the bag. His shoulder and arm, he said, were black and blue for days afterwards from trying to break down the grills. O'Connell said he told Thomas that he was a funny fellow to be telling him all of this. Thomas said that Muriel Croft knew all about it also. While he wasn't afraid she'd blab, there was one person he feared. Quote, There was a woman on the station that night whom I would like to silence. She had a very hard look at me in good light. This would have been Marie Considine. Not a witness now, and perhaps glad of it. O'Connell asked Thomas how he'd gotten away when Melbourne CIB were watching the trains. Thomas had replied, I didn't go by train, I came by boat and threw the pistol which I used overboard on the voyage to Sydney. They'll never convict me with that pistol. O'Connell said that during this period, Thomas sometimes had a moustache. O'Connell also told the court that he'd visited the CIB and told them all of this in 1939, yet he hadn't signed a statement. So, apart from police saying that he was telling the truth, there was no actual evidence of this, which Mr. Galbally seized upon. For the defence, Mr. Galbally also elicited that O'Connell had been convicted of robbery and assault with Thomas and had served three years in prison. So, why hadn't he said anything about this back in 1935? O'Connell replied, because of spite. Spite for the police in general. But not spite for Thomas. O'Connell said he didn't blame the accused for his conviction in 1935. And he wasn't giving evidence for the purpose of putting Thomas in jail now. He was just telling the truth. If Malvern Court's three justices couldn't believe a convicted criminal with a possible grudge, Maybe they'd accept the word of Nora Catherine Green. This 32-year-old nurse was now living in Carlton, and she said she'd known Thomas a long time. Eleven years ago, she'd shared a place in Sydney with him and another friend. Back then, he told her he'd been in Melbourne and there would be a, quote, hue and cry over what had happened down there. Thomas told Nora he'd been unlucky. The bloke had gone for the phone and, well, it had been either him or me. Thomas had also told her that he couldn't get the money because the grill of the booking office had been in the way. Senior Detective Donnelly testified that Thomas had said to him that Muriel Croft and Nora Green had been, quote, fairly decent about it, and he had, quote, no complaint about what the girls had said. This seemed to imply that his former fake wife Muriel, who'd moved back to Melbourne and again lived with her real husband, the real Thomas Croft, had also said something to the police about the shooting. 
even though she wasn't going to be called to testify. Or if she hadn't, Senior Detective Donnelly had claimed to Thomas that she had. Additionally, Thomas had supposedly said that Kenneth O'Connell was a decent fellow, but he didn't think he was being, quote, quite fair in how he'd characterised the Carnegie shooting. Thomas said it wasn't true that he'd shot the assistant station master for resisting or running for the phone. Thomas had allegedly told Detective Donnelly that he was afraid no one would believe him if he told the truth. And that truth was, quote, I did not deliberately shoot that man. Senior Detective Donnelly produced a statement signed by Thomas. In it, the accused had explained that his father had been working on the railways for decades. So, he'd known there'd be money at the station from all the monthly tickets renewed on the 1st of October. At about 9.30 on that night, he'd bought a ticket to Oakley, but had gotten off at Carnegie with the idea to stick up the station master. He carried with him a 32 automatic pistol that he'd bought in Sydney. At the time, he had a black moustache. From the platform gate, he'd watched the man in the ticket office counting the money. Thomas said he only had the pistol as a bluff in case anyone came in. But he did know it was loaded with five or six bullets. Thomas said he'd gone into the outer office and tried to reach under the grill to grab the money. That was when the assistant station master had come in. Quote, When I was trying to reach for the money, the gun caught in the grill and went off and I ran. The last I saw of the station master, he was walking towards the door onto the platform. I did not know I had shot him until I read it in the papers the next day. Thomas said he'd fled. He'd thrown the pistol over the Princess Bridge into the Yarra, shaved his moustache off and gone back to Sydney the very next day. Thomas said he'd returned to Melbourne around the end of October 1934. This was, of course, in line with the lie he'd told at his 1936 trial for attempted murder. Thomas's statement also said he'd joined the AIF in 1939 and that he'd been honourably discharged on the 13th of February 1945. As we'll hear in an upcoming instalment, this was a blend of fact and fiction. Senior Detective Donnelly testified that Lionel Charles Thomas had not said any of this when he was initially interviewed at Red Cliffs. In fact, during seven hours of interrogation there, he denied any involvement in the shooting whatsoever. So the detectives told him they needed to interview him further at Russell Street. They took the train overnight, which was another 14 hours, and Thomas had proclaimed his innocence the entire way. Same went from Saturday morning at the CIB, when Thomas was further interviewed by various detectives. For hour after hour after hour. It was only then that he started to make his confession. He was taken to the crime scene too. Finally, in the early hours of Sunday morning, Thomas signed the written statement, and at 5am he was charged with murder. Had all of this been clever detective work, trapping a man in his own web of lies? For the defence, Mr Galbally said it was not. He accused the police of extracting his client's statement under torture. At Russell Street, he said Thomas had been blindfolded and had his hands cuffed behind his back. A metal appliance had been put on his head and tightened to cause him agony. Thomas was told that this torture device could be screwed up until, quote, 
Something gave and his head burst. The accused had passed out. When he'd come around, he'd said, quote, I will sign it if you take it off my head. Courtroom allegations that the cops had coerced or concocted confessions were not uncommon. But such a public allegation of torture, this was something new, at least as far as I've been able to ascertain from Melbourne newspaper reports of courtroom proceedings in the 1930s and 1940s. CIB detectives using methods from the Spanish Inquisition? It made headlines all over Australia. So did the fact that senior detective Donnelly complained about this line of questioning, saying it was grossly unfair. Quote, I have never seen anything like the gear you mention. We do not use torture methods at Russell Street. His offsider, Detective Petty, testified he'd been present and that no torture had been used. He said colleagues had been coming in and out of the interrogation room and passing by in the hallways outside. Another interrogating officer said the allegation of torture was a complete fabrication. If Thomas had been so terribly treated, why hadn't he made a complaint previously when appearing in court or speaking with court probation officers who had full access to him in the watch house? The Malvern Court justices weren't swayed by these allegations of torture and Thomas was committed to stand trial. The murder case against him began in Melbourne's criminal court on the 7th of August 1945. But it wasn't front page of the Herald that day. Instead, the big headline right across the top of the page read, Mighty Atom Bomb Secrets Out. This was a curious way to express what was related by the article's opening paragraph. Quote, the world's most terrible agent of destruction, the atomic bomb, was used by the Allies for the first time today. It was dropped on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. What happened to Hiroshima has not yet been clearly determined. Thomas's murder trial was relegated to page three. The Crown's witnesses gave pretty much the same evidence as they had in the committal hearing, except for the nurse, Nora Catherine Green. She would tell the court that the accused had gone to Melbourne for a while from Sydney in 1934, and when he came back, he said he'd been to Carnegie and had a, quote, bit of bad luck. Prosecutor Mr. Nolan asked, will you tell us what you recollect? Nora replied, I would tell you if I could remember. Mr. Nolan was given permission to treat her as a hostile witness, which means he was allowed to ask her leading questions. So, had Nora seen Thomas with a gun when he returned from Melbourne? She replied, yes. Had he said there'd be a hue and cry over what had happened down there? Yes. Thomas's counsel was now barrister Robert Monaghan, Melbourne's leading criminal defence lawyer, who was a dazzling courtroom performer who specialised in murder cases. He was the one to ask Nora whether she was afraid of anything. She replied, No, I'm not afraid, but when a man's life depends on it, I'm not going to swear to anything. It's difficult to interpret what was meant by this, whether she just really couldn't remember, because it was so long ago, or whether Mr. Monaghan was implying the police had coached her in what to say and now she was reluctant to do so because she might be putting a man's neck in the noose. Kathleen Durkin testified about being a 15-year-old schoolgirl when she'd seen the man at Carnegie she identified as the man in the dock. Her sister Mary, who'd then been 14 and was now 25, testified she'd also seen the man that night. Quote, 
He was wearing a moustache and it appeared to be false. This was an echo of what the witness Marie Considine had said in 1934 at the inquest. Young Mary and Kathleen hadn't been called then. Could Mary say that the man in the dock had been the shooter? She couldn't, but she said he was similar. The jury could make what it wanted of these decade-old recollections from women who'd been kids at the time. Mr Monaghan cross-examined Senior Detective Donnelly. He said he'd gone to Mildura to see the accused after receiving information from Kenneth O'Connell and Nora Green. Detective Donnelly agreed that for seven hours at Mildura, 14 hours on the train and another 11 hours at the CIB, Thomas had said he was innocent. Mr. Monaghan pressed, quote, For 28 hours, he denied it. Then, all of a sudden, he tells you the whole story? Detective Donnelly replied, It was two hours later that he told the story. Mr. Monaghan, So why didn't you charge him then? The detective answered, I wanted to find out all the circumstances of the shooting. Mr. Monaghan, You did not charge him until 11 hours after that. Detective Donnelly said, Yes. Mr. Monaghan ran through all the torture questions. Detective Donnelly said no headgear was placed on Thomas and tightened to cause him pain. No, he wasn't blindfolded, and no, he wasn't handcuffed behind his back. No officer had threatened to drop him out of a second-story window and said his death would be explained as a tragic accident when he tried to escape. Detective Donnelly told the court that Thomas had actually been on the ground floor when he'd been interrogated. Mr. Monaghan also took apart star witness Kenneth O'Connell. He said his story was inconsistent. For example, the Carnegie assistant station master had not been shot while he was speaking on the telephone. Then, of course, there was the simple question of why the accused would have confessed all of this in detail. O'Connell had said at their 1935 trial that he didn't even know Thomas. If he was lying then, why believe him now? Thomas gave an unsworn statement from the dock and said he'd made the written confession because he couldn't stand the police torture any longer. He said he had not been in Melbourne at the time of the murder. By then, he'd left because his wife said she was in love with another man. Thomas said he'd gone to Sydney. Then, when he'd heard he might have had a chance of patching things up with his wife, he'd come back very briefly. It hadn't worked out, so he'd gone back to Sydney. He'd never been at Carnegie Station that year or anywhere near it. The Argus reported his testimony this way, quote, He had left her, that is his wife, and went to live with his parents. The only time he was in Melbourne in 1934 was about the middle of the year when he had tried to effect a reconciliation with his wife. Of course, Thomas wasn't admitting that he'd actually been in Pentridge for the first half of 1934. That made his romantic, melodramatic Sydney-Melbourne-Sydney account rather dubious. Thomas told the jury he'd first been questioned about the Carnegie murder by Detective McGuffey in 1939. That interview had lasted seven hours. He hadn't heard anything about it again until the 25th of May when detectives came to Red Cliffs and told him to pack and that he wasn't coming back. He was taken to Russell Street where the hard word was put on him followed by the intimidation and then the torture. Detectives had typed a statement and told him he was going to sign it. If he didn't, his head would be stuck in the headgear and the screws would be tightened. They did this several times and still he refused. Thomas told the jury, quote, 
The last time the pain was terrible, but I put up with it as long as I possibly could, and when I could not bear it any longer, I said I would sign. I must have passed out at the time because I do not remember anyone taking the thing off my head or taking the handcuffs off. The trial lasted five days. In summing up, Mr Justice Lowe said it came down to whether the jury believed the witnesses had identified the accused and how the jury believed the confession had been obtained. His Honour pointed out that Senior Detective Donnelly had given sworn evidence from the stand, subject to cross-examination, while Thomas had given an unsworn statement from the dock which couldn't be interrogated. On Saturday the 11th of August 1945, as news broke that the Japanese had announced they were ready to surrender in the wake of the second atomic blast at Nagasaki, the jury failed to agree on the murder charge against Thomas. It would later be reported that 11 jurors had voted guilty. Thomas had avoided the death sentence thanks to one man. But the Crown would get a second chance to put him on the gallows at the retrial. On Friday, the 12th of October, as Melbourne streets were packed with wildly cheering people greeting returned POWs, a second jury failed to agree in Thomas's second trial. He'd go to trial a third time. On Thursday, the 15th of November, after deliberating for six hours, the third jury failed to agree. Thomas was remanded in custody for a fourth trial the following month in the Supreme Court. But on the 6th of December, 1945, police announced they were dropping the case. After nearly six months in custody, Thomas was discharged and was free to go. He immediately packed himself off to Sydney. Given what he claimed about Melbourne detectives, this was probably a wise move. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The man who'd just beaten three murder trials was done with being Lionel Charles Thomas and Thomas Edward Croft. When he got to Sydney, he reverted to another alias he was fond of using, one that hadn't been sullied in a major courtroom drama for well over a decade. Thomas would now go by his brother-in-law's name, Frederick Arthur Stevens. In Sydney in 1946, as Fred, he briefly associated with a woman named Pearl Jackson in Eastwood and then in Paddington. But the relationship ended when she took out a warrant for his arrest accusing him of having stolen her diamond ring. Police couldn't find Fred. That was because this mystery man was no longer in the city. He'd headed for the outskirts, Blacktown. Nearly 25 miles west of Sydney, Blacktown in 1946 was a little village surrounded by a lot of farmland that would soon see an explosion of suburban development. For the moment, though, it was a sleepy little place that only had two policemen. Blacktown had a couple of dozen businesses in the few streets near the railway station. 
grocers, fishmongers, butchers, a milk bar, and the Robin Hood Hotel. There was also Hebblewhite's Bakery, and it was here that new arrival Fred Stevens got a job making Blacktown's daily bread. For about a year, Fred boarded with a local man named Arthur Graham. While Fred was renting a room, he quietly snaffled some of his landlord's papers, because you never knew when it might be good to have another identity. For the time being, though, he was Fred, and Fred had certainly lived a storied life. His wife had given birth to twins, who died. Then his wife had another set of twins, who lived, and who were now being raised in a convent. They were being raised in a convent because Mrs. Fred was dead. She'd died having triplets, and these babies had also perished. Incidentally, in this backstory, Fred had a twin brother. Like Lionel Charles Thomas's own real life, his fake Fred life was riddled with doppelganger identities. He also made curious choices in his new origin tale. Fred claimed his father was a wealthy railway station master in Victoria. As a child of privilege, Fred had gone to college in Ballarat. And despite him now boarding and doing long hours in a bakery in little old Blacktown, Fred claimed he actually owned a fully furnished brick home in Ringwood in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. Fred presented himself as a wealthy, hard-working widower of means who'd suffered his fair share of bad luck. He was tall, dark, and not bad-looking, and he had a way that women found pretty charming. Fred was that sort of middle-aged man that a middle-aged woman might find quite appealing, and he was soon telling his story to a new lady friend. Phyllis Mary Page had been born Phyllis Mary Martin in 1900 at St Mary's, and she was a long-time Blacktown resident. Phyllis stood five foot four and had dark brown hair, gone grey at the temples, that she wore brushed back from her high forehead. She wore bifocals and had a big pleasant smile, even if those were false teeth she was sporting. Like poor old Fred, Phyllis knew what it was like to lose the one you love. In 1924, she'd married Norman Page. He was 28 and had lived in the district all of his life. Known to most by the nickname Dick, he ran a butcher's shop in Blacktown. Dick was a popular chap who played football and first grade cricket for Blacktown and who was active in local fraternal societies. Jean and Dick had a son in 1924 and they named him Norman Jr., daughter Jean came along in 1927. But Dick was cut down by a stroke in May 1931. He was just 35 years old. His death left Phyllis to raise two young children right as Australia was sinking deeper and deeper into the economic quagmire of the Great Depression. She did have family in the district, so that was a help, but Phyllis also had to buckle down if she and her kids were going to rise above their circumstances. Phyllis worked hard as a cleaner at Blacktown Council, and she didn't drink or waste money gambling on dogs or horses. Little Norman contributed too, with money from his newspaper round. Devoted to her children, Phyllis didn't remarry. By the time the Second World War was over, she was about ready for a rest and to enjoy the rewards of her long labours. Norman was now 21, and Jean was 18. The kids were grown up and would soon spread their wings. 
but for the moment they live with their mum in the house that they'd all worked so hard to pay off and to keep nice. Meanwhile, Fred Stevens, the new baker at Hebel White's, made the acquaintance of a Blacktown woman named Dorothy Savage. One day, he asked Dot, why don't you sell your house and go away with me? That'll be the day, she replied, when I sell my home for any man. Fred had probably been joking, but Dot did feel sorry for him because he said he was lonely. She knew a woman that he might like, Phyllis Page, who Dot worked with as a cleaner at Blacktown Council. One Saturday afternoon, Dot took Fred to Phyllis's place to play cards. The widow and the widower hit it off. So much so that around autumn of 1947, Phyllis's children already had the idea their mum would soon tie the knot with this new man. Fred even said to Jean and Norman, Has Phil told you kids about us getting married? But Phyllis told them she'd only wed Fred if they approved. Which they did. Kind of. Jean would say she couldn't really see Fred's appeal, but she did know he made her mum happy. In May 1947, Fred moved into Phyllis's house as a boarder. That same month, Jean got married, and her new husband also moved in. It was one big, happy extended family. But in October 1947, Fred had to say goodbye, at least for a while. He was off to Rabal to work as a baker. But unknown to Phyllis, Norman and Jean, Fred wasn't going to New Guinea as Frederick Arthur Stevens. He was now going to be Arthur Graham. Using his former landlord's documents and information, he forged his name on the necessary entry and tax papers. In Rabal, Thomas worked in a bakery owned by Geoffrey Black, who lived there with his wife Corinne. Fred, a.k.a. Arthur, a.k.a. Lionel, returned to Blacktown in early 1948. His desire to marry Phyllis hadn't dimmed. But around this time, he also found out about another woman who was much, much younger. This came from Norman, who told the man he assumed was going to be his future stepfather about this girl he knew up in Brisbane. Luba Karamishev, her name was, and Norman had met her a year or so ago when he'd been on holiday up there. Since then, they'd written to each other. Luba was from a Russian family, and she was only 18. Her sad story was that her mother had died the day after her 15th birthday. Norman showed Fred photos of Luba, and he made a mental note of everything he'd learned about this Brisbane girl. Later, he'd steal one of the photos that Luba had sent to Norman. Fred went back to Rabal around October of 1948. While Phyllis waited for him to return, she knitted clothes for herself in her new life as Mrs. Fred Stevens. Even though he was away, she had plenty of joy in her life. That was because Jean that year gave birth to a little boy. Phyllis Page was now a grandmother. Over in Rabal, Fred, aka Arthur Graham, was making himself fairly infamous. As a later article in The Sun by respected police roundsman Noel Bailey would claim, quote, Back in New Guinea, working at Black's Bakery again, Thomas embarked upon a disgusting session of plying natives with liquor and associating intimately with native women and young boys. 
On one occasion, he knocked down Black's wife, Mrs. Corinne Black, and only the timely intervention of two native boys prevented him from strangling her as he screamed, I'll kill you now. This report continued. On another occasion, he supposedly approached another bakery worker named Hennessy and proposed killing Jeffrey Black. They'd hit him over the head while he was dozing on his veranda and dump his body off a wharf so it'd look like suicide. Croft said as he and Hennessy would then be the only bakers left in Rabal, they'd have no trouble taking over the business. Hennessy would have nothing to do with the plan. Thomas was then involved on several occasions in assaults, thrashing native boys and women. Noel Bailey's article said that when Thomas believed one of his victims was going to the police, Thomas said he'd get into his car and run the lad down, adding, I'm entitled to have an accident as much as anybody else. Authorities eventually learned of this monster in their midst and deported him back to Sydney. Thomas entered the country under the name Frederick Arthur Stevens. This made sense because Phyllis was going to meet him at Mascot on the night of the 23rd of December 1949. But two Redfern detectives also had gotten wind that Fred was on his way back. They had a welcome home present arranged. This was the warrant for his arrest in that name that had been issued in 1946 after the woman Pearl Jackson had reported that Fred had stolen her diamond ring. These Redfern police were waiting for Fred at Mascot and took him into custody. He wasn't well, feverish, a blanket over his shoulders, pills and a thermometer in his pocket. This could have been the results of a debauch, but more likely it was malaria. Fred had 82 pounds in cash in a pocket and the detectives took this and handed it to Phyllis. She presumably then used £40 of this money to pay his bail. Phyllis took Fred back to Blacktown. What did she think of this unseemly scene? Her fiancé bundled off to Redfern Police Station, charged with theft and ordered to front up to a committal proceeding early in the new year. Fred, her Fred, would have had no trouble spinning this as nothing more than a years-old misunderstanding. That woman, Pearl Jackson, was a flake that he'd once known, and was glad to no longer know. Anyway, Fred had exciting news. In the year and a bit he'd been away, he'd made a success of himself in New Guinea. He'd bought a bakery in Rabal and entered into negotiations for another one in Mandang. Fred had plenty of cash in the bank over there, though it was tied up for tax reasons. Back in the Blacktown home, before New Year's, Fred and Phyllis announced their plan. They were going to get married and go away for a three-month camping holiday. They'd tour the New South Wales southwest and south coast, head on down over the Victorian border and into Gippsland. Fred said that Phyllis should sell her house. He told her kids, quote, Mum won't need a home at Blacktown as I've got a brick house in Melbourne fully furnished and she won't want for anything. They also talked about coming back to Blacktown for a while before going off to New Guinea. On the 5th of January 1950, Fred faced Redfern Court, charged with stealing Pearl Jackson's ring. She didn't show up. Detectives had apparently tried to find Pearl, but they had no luck. She'd disappeared. Without her there, the case was dismissed. Fred left with Phyllis on his arm. Back in Blacktown, they set about turning their plans into action. First, to sell the house. 
Phyllis said her children had to get half the money, and Fred agreed this was fair. Discussing it with the family, he said that Jean and Norman would get the best return on their share if they invested in his bakery businesses. They thought this was a sound financial idea. Fred took Phyllis to see his friend and solicitor, Abraham Brindley, who had an Elizabeth Street office opposite Hyde Park. Fred told Phyllis and her children that he'd known Abe since they'd both been students back in Ballarat. This wasn't true. Abraham Brindley would later say he'd known the man he knew as Fred Stevens since around 1946. If Phyllis had been following the news back then, she would have heard of Abraham Brindley. From January 1945, he'd been in all the newspapers as the Sydney solicitor on the wrong side of the law. He stood accused with a handful of other men of conspiracy to produce and distribute counterfeit ration coupons during the war. This was a serious offence, not just a crime, but a crime that undermined the patriotic war effort. Brindley had defended himself and had bitterly accused Sydney CIB's Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack of framing him. The coupon conspiracy case trial concluded in August 1945 after a whopping 20 sitting days. This included the jury deliberating for 12 hours before they announced they couldn't reach a verdict. The retrial began in March of 1946. The most sensational moments came in Abraham Brindley's closing address. This was his courtroom denunciation of Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack, and it lasted hours. Brindley said the evidence against him was a frame-up of epic proportions. Here's one highlight from his diatribe. Quote, This house that Jack built was conceived in ambition, fostered in malice and bias, nurtured in the lap of lies, and brought to fruition on the shoulders of unblushing, blatant perjury. In case the jury had missed his point, he said, quote, I hate Jack, loathe him, and despise him. When the jury retired, they deliberated for 25 hours. When they returned, it was the 34th day of the trial. This was one day short of an Australian record. The verdict? The jury convicted two men and were unable to reach a verdict on the charges against two others. Abraham Brindley? He was acquitted on all charges. I tell this story to make the following points. A. Brindley, despite the verdict, had been under a cloud of suspicion. B. He'd pulled no punches to claim the cops were corrupt. C. No one had publicly expressed more hatred for Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack than Abraham Brindley. And D. Abraham Brindley had won. In summary, should Fred Stevens ever need legal representation again on a serious criminal matter in Sydney Town, he'd do well to have a courtroom fighter like Brindley in his corner, particularly if he should find himself up against Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack. But for the moment, in mid-January 1950, Abraham Brindley had the more quotidian task of handling the sale of Phyllis's house for £1,650. This was at least a couple of hundred pounds less than her son Norman had thought was a good price. But if you wanted to move a property fast, those were the breaks. The house purchase money was paid to Phyllis by cheque. These funds then held in Brindley's trust account. 
But Fred was a frustrated man. See, he wanted to buy a panel van for his road trip with Phyllis, except all of his money was tied up over in New Guinea. On the 23rd of January, Fred went to see Abraham Brindley. He said Phyllis had given him permission to withdraw £850 from the trust account. She was going to loan him this money for a panel van. He produced a written authorization that was signed P.M. Page. Fred would later say, quote, I negotiated with Mr. Brindley in Sydney for the purchase of a standard panel van and got it on January the 23rd for £800 odd. The wording of this made it sound very much like he'd bought the vehicle from his solicitor, but it may just have meant he bought it through him. In any case, three days later, Abraham Brindley cut Fred a second check after being told Phyllis had consented. All up, the solicitor paid Fred £1,606 from the trust account. Yet, when Phyllis's children asked her where her money was, she said it was being held by A. Brindley and she'd access it when she and Fred got to where they were going. Fred had taken his U-Butte cream-coloured standard Vanguard panel van back to Blacktown. He loaded it up with two camp beds, a red tent fly, an axe, a spade, a 22 calibre rifle and other supplies necessary for their three-month trip. Phyllis was taking all of her worldly possessions in a big wooden trunk. This included her valuables, a three-strand pearl necklace, a gold wristwatch, a three-stone diamond ring and two wedding rings, one from her dead husband and one that Fred had apparently given to her in anticipation of them actually getting married. Phyllis kept this jewellery in a blue box. Phyllis also packed a whole new wardrobe she'd bought to add to the clothes she'd been excitedly knitting over these past two years. Fred told Norman, I'm a happy man. I will see that Phil gets looked after properly. Phyllis told her children she'd write regularly. Norman and Jean said that their mum had always been a bit cagey about when she and Fred were going to get married. So, before they left, they asked their mum if they were already married. Phyllis said no, and joking said she'd send some photos when they got around to their wedding. Phyllis's friend and co-worker Dot Savage would say, A day or two before they left, I saw Mrs. Page, and I have never seen a woman so happy in all my life. Phyllis Mary Page would be 50 later in the year. She'd worked hard and sacrificed much after the loss of her first husband, but life had worked out. She'd been blessed with two wonderful children and a beautiful grandchild. She had a lovely fiancé, money in her bank account, and a whole new life of adventure laid out ahead of her. On the 2nd of February 1950, Phyllis and Fred said their goodbyes. They got into the panel van, put Blacktown in the rearview mirror, and headed southwest on the open road. Phyllis's loved ones would never see her again. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part two of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Terrible Mr. Thomas. Part three will be released soon but Part 3 and 4 are available now ad-free for Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers. If you're an Apple user, you can try before you buy with a 3-day free trial. Links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.